Chapter Sixteen of the Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernest Haeckel, translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter Sixteen Knowledge and Belief the knowledge of the truth and its sources the activity of the senses and the association of presentations organs of sense and organs of thought sense organs and their specific energy their evolution the philosophy of sensibility inestimable value of the senses limits of sensitive knowledge hypotheses and faith theory and faith essential difference of scientific natural and religious supernatural faith superstition of savage and of civilized races confessions of faith unsectarian schools the faith of our fathers spiritism and revelation every effort of genuine science makes for a knowledge of the truth our only real and valuable knowledge is a knowledge of nature itself and consists of presentations which correspond to external things we are incompetent it is true to penetrate into the innermost nature of this real world the thing in itself but impartial critical observation and comparison inform us that in the normal action of the brain and the organs of sense the impressions received by them from the outer world are the same in all rational men and that in the normal function of the organs of thought certain presentations are formed which are everywhere the same these presentations we call true and we are convinced that their content corresponds to the knowable aspect of things we know that these facts are not imaginary but real all knowledge of the truth depends on two different but intimately connected groups of human physiological functions firstly on the sense impressions of the object by means of sense action and secondly on the combination of these impressions by an association into presentations in the subject the instruments of sensation are the sense organs sensilla or astata the instruments which form and link together the presentations are the organs of thought phronata the latter a part of the central and the former part of the peripheral nervous system that important and elaborate system of organs in the higher animals which alone affects their entire psychic activity man's sense activity which is the starting point of all knowledge has been slowly and gradually developed from that of his nearest mammal relatives the primates the sense organs are of substantially the same construction throughout this highest animal group and their function takes place always according to the same physical and chemical laws they have had the same historical development in all cases in the mammals as in the case of all other animals the sensilla were originally parts of the skin the sensitive cells of the epidermis are the sources of all the different sense organs which have acquired their specific energy by adaptation to different stimuli light heat sound chemical action etc the rod cells in the retina of the eye the auditory cells in the cochlea of the ear 
the olfactory cells in the nose and the taste cells on the tongue are all originally derived from the simple indifferent cells of the epidermis which cover the entire surface of the body this significant fact can be directly proved by observation of the embryonic development of man or any of the higher animals and from this ontogenetic fact we confidently infer in virtue of the great biogenetic law the important phylogenetic proposition that in the long historical evolution of our ancestors likewise the higher sense organs with their specific energies were originally derived from the epidermis of lower animals from a simple layer of cells which had no trace of such differentiated sensilla a particular importance attaches to the circumstance that different nerves are qualified to perceive different properties of the environment and these only the optic nerve accomplishes only the perception of light the auditory nerve the perception of sound the olfactory nerve the perception of smell and so on no matter what stimuli impinge on and irritate a given sense organ its reaction is always of the same character from this specific energy of the sense nerves which was first fully appreciated by johannes muller very erroneous inferences have been drawn especially in favor of a dualistic and a priori theory of knowledge it has been affirmed that the brain or the soul only perceives a certain condition of the stimulated nerve and that consequently no conclusion can be drawn from the process as to the existence and nature of the stimulating environment skeptical philosophy concluded that the very existence of an outer world is doubtful and extreme idealism went on positively to deny it contending that things only exist in our impressions of them in opposition to these erroneous views we must recall the fact that the specific energy was not originally an innate special quality of the various nerves but it has arisen by adaptation to the particular activity of the epidermic cells in which they terminate in harmony with the great law of division of labor the originally indifferent sense cells of the skin undertook different tasks one group of them taking over the stimulus of the light rays another the impress of the sound waves a third the chemical impulse of odorous substances and so on in the course of a very long period these external stimuli effected a gradual change in the physiological and later in the morphological properties of these parts of the epidermis and there was a correlative modification of the sensitive nerves which conduct the impressions they receive to the brain selection improved step by step such particular modifications as proved to be useful and thus eventually in the course of many million years created these wonderful instruments the eye and the ear which we prize so highly their structure is so remarkably purposive that they might well lead to the erroneous assumption of a creation on a preconceived design the peculiar character of each sense organ and its specific nerve has thus been gradually evolved by use and exercise that is by adaptation and has then been transmitted by heredity from generation to generation 
Albrecht Rau has thoroughly established this view in his excellent work on sensation and thought, a physiological inquiry into the nature of the human understanding, 1896. It points out the correct significance of Mueller's law of specific sense energies, adding searching investigations into their relation to the brain, and in the last chapter there is an able philosophy of sensitivity based on the ideas of Ludwig Feuerbach. I thoroughly agree with his convincing work. Critical comparison of sense action in man and the other vertebrates has brought to light a number of extremely important facts the knowledge of which we owe to the penetrating research of the nineteenth century especially of the second half of the century this is particularly true of two most elaborate aesthetic organs the eye and the ear they present a different and more complicated structure in the vertebrates than in the other animals and have also a characteristic development in the embryo this typical ontogenesis and structure of the sensilla of all the vertebrates is only explained by heredity from a common ancestor within the vertebrate group however we find a great variety of structure in points of detail and this is due to adaptation to their manner of life on the part of the various species to the increasing or diminishing use of various parts in respect of the structure of his sense organs man is by no means the most perfect and most highly developed vertebrate the eye of the eagle is much keener and can distinguish small objects at a distance much more clearly than the human eye the hearing of many mammals especially of the carnivora ungulata and rodentia of the desert is much more sensitive than that of man and perceives slight noises at a much greater distance that may be seen at a glance by their large and very sensitive cochlea singing birds have attained a higher grade of development even in respect of musical endowment than the majority of men the sense of smell is much more developed in most of the mammals especially in the carnivora and the ungulata than in man if the dog could compare his own fine scent with that of man he would look down on us with compassion even with regard to the lower senses taste sex sense touch and temperature man has by no means reached the highest stage in every respect we can naturally only pass judgment on the sensations which we ourselves experience however anatomy informs us of the presence in the bodies of many animals of other senses than those we are familiar with thus fishes and other lower aquatic vertebrates have peculiar sensilla in the skin which are in connection with special sense nerves on the right and left sides of the fish's body there is a long canal branching into a number of smaller canals at the head in this mucous canal there are nerves with numerous branches the terminations of which are connected with peculiar nerve aggregates this extensive epidermic sense organ probably serves for the perception of changes in the pressure or in other properties of the water some groups are distinguished by the possession of other peculiar sensilla, the meaning of which is still unknown to us. But it is already clear from the above facts that our human sense activity is limited not only in quantity but in quality also. We can thus only perceive with our senses, especially with the eye and the sense of touch, 
a part of the qualities of the objects in our environment and even this partial perception is incomplete in the sense that our organs are imperfect and our sensory nerves acting as interpreters communicate to the brain only a translation of the impressions received however this acknowledged imperfection of our senses should not prevent us from recognizing their instruments and especially the eye to be organs of the highest type together with the thought organs in the brain they are nature's most valuable gift to man very truly does albrecht rau say all science is sensitive knowledge in the ultimate analysis it does not deny but interpret the data of the senses the senses are our first and best friends long before the mind is developed the senses tell man what he must do and avoid he who makes a general disavowal of the senses in order to meet their dangers acts as thoughtlessly and as foolishly as the man who plucks out his eyes because they once fell on shameful things or the man who cuts off his hand lest at any time it should reach out to the goods of his neighbor hence feuerbach is quite right in calling all philosophies religions and systems which oppose the principle of sense action not only erroneous but really pernicious without the senses there is no knowledge nihil est intellectu quod non furit in sensu as locke said twenty years ago i pointed out in my chapter on the origin and development of the sense organs the great service of darwinism in giving us a profounder knowledge and a juster appreciation of the senses the thirst for knowledge of the educated mind is not contented with the defective acquaintance with the outer world which is obtained through our imperfect sense organs he endeavors to build up the sense impressions which they have brought him into valuable knowledge he transforms them into specific sense perceptions in the sense centers of the cortex of the brain and combines them into presentations by association in the thought centers finally by a further concatenation of the groups of presentations he attains to connected knowledge but this knowledge remains defective and unsatisfactory until the imagination supplements the inadequate power of combination of the intelligence and by the association of stored-up images unites the isolated elements into a connected whole thus are produced new general presentative images and these suffice to interpret the facts perceived and satisfy reason's feeling of causality the presentations which fill up the gaps in our knowledge or take its place may be called in a broad sense faith that is what happens continually in daily life when we're not sure about a thing we say i believe it in this sense we are compelled to make use of faith even in science itself we conjecture or assume that a certain relation exists between two phenomena though we do not know it for certain if it is a question of a cause we form a hypothesis though in science only such hypotheses are admitted as lie within the sphere of human cognizance and do not contradict known facts such hypotheses are for instance in physics the theory of the vibratory movement of ether in chemistry the hypotheses of atoms and their affinity in biology 
the theory of the molecular structure of living protoplasm, and so forth. The explanation of a great number of connected phenomena by the assumption of a common cause is called a theory. Both in theory and hypotheses, faith in the scientific sense is indispensable. For here again it is the imagination that fills up the gaps left by the intelligence in our knowledge of the connection of things. A theory, therefore, must always be regarded only as an approximation to the truth. It must be understood that it may be replaced in time by another and better grounded theory. But in spite of this admitted uncertainty, theory is indispensable for all true science. It elucidates facts by postulating a cause for them. The man who renounces theory altogether and seeks to construct a pure science with certain facts alone, as often happens with wrong-headed representatives of our exact sciences, must give up the hope of any knowledge of causes and consequently of the satisfaction of reason's demand for causality. The theory of gravitation in astronomy, Newton, the nebula theory in cosmogony, Kant, and Laplace, the principle of energy in physics, Meyer and Helmholtz, the atomic theory in chemistry, Dalton, the vibratory theory in optics, Huygens, the cellular theory in histology, Schleiden and Swann, and the theory of descent in biology, Lamarck and Darwin, are all important theories of the first rank. They explain a whole world of natural phenomena by the assumption of a common cause for all the several facts of their respective provinces, and by showing that all the phenomena thereof are interconnected and controlled by laws which issue from this common cause. And yet the cause itself may remain obscure in character, or be merely a provisional hypothesis. The force of gravity, in the theory of gravitation and in cosmogony, energy itself in its relation to matter, the ether of optics and electricity, the atom of the chemist, the living protoplasm of histology, the heredity of the evolutionist, these and other similar conceptions of other great theories may be regarded by a skeptical philosophy as mere hypotheses, and the outcome of scientific faith and yet they are indispensable for us until they are replaced by better hypotheses. The dogmas which are used for the explanation of phenomena in the various religions, and which go by the name of faith in the narrower sense, are of a very different character from the forms of scientific faith we have enumerated. The two types, however, the natural faith of science and the supernatural faith of religion are not infrequently confounded, so that we must point out their fundamental differences. Religious faith means always belief in a miracle, and as such is in hopeless contradiction with the natural faith of reason. In opposition to reason, it postulates supernatural agencies, and therefore may be justly called superstition. The essential difference of this superstition from rational faith lies in the fact that it assumes supernatural forces and phenomena, which are unknown and inadmissible to science, and which are the outcome of illusion and fancy. Moreover, superstition contradicts the well-known laws of nature, 
and is therefore irrational. Owing to the great progress of ethnology during the century, we've learned a vast quantity of different kinds and practices of superstition, as they still survive in uncivilized races. When they are compared with each other, and with the mythological notion of earlier ages, a manifold analogy is discovered, frequently a common origin, and eventually one simple source for them all. This is found in the demand of causality in reason, in the search for an explanation of obscure phenomena by the discovery of a cause. That applies particularly to such phenomena as threaten us with danger and excite fear like thunder and lightning, earthquakes, eclipses, etc. The demand for a causal explanation of such phenomena is found in uncivilized races of the lowest grade, transmitted from their primate ancestors by heredity. It is even found in many other vertebrates. When a dog barks at the full moon, or at a ringing bell of which it sees the hammer moving, or at a flag that flutters in the breeze, it expresses not only fear, but also the mysterious impulse to learn the cause of the obscure phenomena. The crude beginnings of religion among primitive races spring partly from this hereditary superstition of their primate ancestors, and partly from the worship of ancestors from various emotional impulses, and from habits which have become traditional. The religious notions of modern civilized peoples, which they esteem so highly, profess to be on a much higher level than the crude superstition of the savage. We are told of the great advance which civilization has made in sweeping it aside. That is a great mistake. Impartial comparison and analysis show that they only differ in their special form of faith and the outer shell of their creed. In the clear light of reason, the refined faith of the most liberal ecclesiastical religion inasmuch as it contradicts the known and inviolable laws of nature, is no less irrational a superstition than the crude spirit-faith of primitive fetishism on which it looks down with proud disdain. And if from this impartial standpoint we take a critical glance at the kinds of faith that prevail today in civilized countries, we find them everywhere saturated with traditional superstition. The Christian belief in creation, the Trinity, the Immaculate Conception, the Redemption, the Resurrection and Ascension of Christ, and so forth, is just as purely imaginative as the belief in the various dogmas of the Mohammedan, Mosaic, Buddhistic, and Brahmanic religions, and is just as incapable of reconciliation with a rational knowledge of nature. Each of these religions is for the sincere believer an indisputable truth, and each regards the other as heresy and damnable error. The more confidently a particular sect considers itself the only ark of salvation, and the more ardently this conviction is cherished, the more zealously does it contend against all other sects, and gives rise to the fearful religious wars that form the saddest pages in the book of history and all the time the unprejudiced critique of pure reason teaches us that all these different forms of faith are equally false and irrational mere creatures of poetic fancy and uncritical tradition rational science must reject them all alike 
as the outcome of superstition the incalculable injury which irrational superstition has done to credulous humanity is conspicuously revealed in the ceaseless conflict of confessions of faith of all the wars which nations have waged against each other with fire and sword the religious wars have been the bloodiest of all the forms of discord that have shattered the happiness of families and of individuals those that arise from religious differences are still the most painful think of the millions who have lost their lives in christian persecutions in the religious conflicts of islam and of the reformation by the inquisition and under the charge of witchcraft or think of the still greater number of luckless men who through religious differences have been plunged into family troubles have lost the esteem of their fellow citizens and their position in the community or have even been compelled to fly from their country the official confession of faith becomes most pernicious of all when it is associated with the political aims of a modern state and is enforced as a religious instruction in our schools the child's mind is thus early diverted from the pursuit of the truth and impregnated with superstition every friend of humanity should do all in his power to promote unsectarian schools as one of the most valuable institutions of the modern state the great value which is none the less still very widely attached to sectarian instruction is not only due to the compulsion of a reactionary state and its dependence on a dominant clericalism but also to the weight of old traditions and emotional cravings of various kinds one of the strongest of these is the devout reverence which is extended everywhere to sectarian tradition to the faith of our fathers in thousands of stories and poems fidelity to it is extolled as a spiritual treasure and a sacred duty and yet a little impartial study of the history of faith suffices to show the absurdity of the notion the dominant evangelical faith of the second half of the nineteenth century is essentially different from that of the first half and this again from that of the eighteenth century the faith of the eighteenth century diverges considerably from the faith of our fathers of the seventeenth and still more from that of the sixteenth century the reformation releasing enslaved reason from the tyranny of the popes is naturally regarded by them as the darkest heresy but even the faith of the papacy itself has been completely transformed in the course of a century and how different is the faith of the christian from that of his heathen ancestors every man with some degree of independent thought frames a more or less personal religion for himself which is always different from that of his fathers it depends largely on the general condition of thought in his day the further we go back in the history of civilization the more clearly do we find this esteemed faith of our fathers to be an indefensible superstition which is undergoing continual transformation one of the most remarkable forms of superstition which still takes a very active part in modern life is spiritism it is a surprising and a lamentable fact that millions of educated people are still dominated by this dreary superstition even distinguished scientists are entangled in it 
a number of spiritualist journals spread the faith far and wide and our superior circles do not scruple to hold seances in which spirits appear rapping writing giving messages from the beyond and so on it is a frequent boast of spiritists that even eminent men of science defend their superstition in germany a zollner and fechner are quoted as instances in england wallace and crookes the regrettable circumstance that physicists and biologists of such distinction have been led astray by spiritism is accounted for partly by their excessive imagination and defect of critical faculty and partly by the powerful influence of dogmas which a religious education imprinted on the brain in early youth moreover it was precisely through the famous seances at leipzig in which the physicists zollner fechner and wilhelm weber were imposed on by that clever american conjurer slade that the fraud of the latter was afterwards fully exposed he was discovered to be a common impostor in other cases too where the alleged marvels of spiritism have been thoroughly investigated they've been traced to a more or less clever deception the mediums generally of the weaker sex have been found to be either smart swindlers or nervous persons of abnormal irritability their supposed gift of telepathy for action at a distance of thought without material medium has no more existence than the voices or the groans of spirits etc the vivid pictures which carl duprell of munich and other spiritists give of their phenomena must be regarded as the outcome of a lively imagination together with a lack of critical power and of knowledge of physiology the majority of religions have in spite of their great differences one common feature which is at the same time one of their strongest supports in many quarters they declare that they can elucidate the problem of existence the solution of which is beyond the natural power of reason by the supernatural way of revelation from that they derive the authority of the dogmas which is the guise of divine laws control morality and the practical conduct of life divine inspirations of that kind form the basis of many myths and legends the human origin of which is perfectly clear it is true that the god who reveals himself does not always appear in human shape but in thunder and lightning storm and earthquake fiery bush or menacing cloud but the revelation which he is supposed to bring to the credulous children of men is always anthropomorphic it invariably takes the form of a communication of ideas or commands which are formulated and expressed precisely as is done in the normal action of the human brain and larynx in the indian and egyptian religions in the mythologies of greece and rome in the old and new testaments the gods think talk and act just as men do the revelations in which they are supposed to unveil for us the secrets of existence and the solution of the great world enigma are creations of the human imagination the truth which the credulous discover in them is a human invention the childlike faith in these irrational revelations is mere superstition the true revelation that is the true source of rational knowledge 
is to be sought in nature alone the rich heritage of truth which forms the most valuable part of human culture is derived exclusively from the experiences acquired in a searching study of nature and from the rational conclusions which it has reached by the just association of these empirical presentations every intelligent man with normal brain and senses finds this true revelation in nature on impartial study and thus frees himself from the superstition with which the revelations of religion had burdened him end of chapter 16